Put on your gi and fire up the VCR. It's time to teach yourself jujitsu in the basement with a little help from the instructional martial arts tapes of the 90s. Holy heck, you did it. You pressed the button. You found the thing on the side in the interwebs. It's us. It's you. It's we. It's where? What am I talking about? What's even happening? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter, a pro wrestling booker, occasionally a ring announcer. But more importantly for today, I am a martial arts history nerd. Ooh, isn't that ominous and a little strange? We haven't done a martial arts episode in a while, so this is going to be exciting. And I'm here with a special guest. It's Troy Everett from Nova Mente Jiu-Jitsu. How are you? Oh, I'm great. How are you, Jay? Oh, we're doing fine. We're having fun. We're going to be talking about the fad of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu training VHS tapes from the 90s, their roots, their origins how they became so popular and so lucrative a business for lots and lots of people. It's going to be a little bit of a nostalgic trip for me because I bought a lot of these things back when I was a kid, and I wanted Troy here because he knows a thing or two about jiu-jitsu. Tell us about your jiu-jitsu journey and about Nova Mente. Oh, nice. So I started training jiu-jitsu in 2009, so it's been about 14 years of me training. I got my black belt in... 2021 um i've just i've been doing jiu-jitsu literally for non-stop for the last 14 years um i took over nova mente it's on uh, federal in oxford um come down try a class uh, about four years ago um, so i teach all the classes there i run everything I, I buy toilet paper i clean up after children i do all the things that are uh, go with owning a business but i get to do jiu-jitsu for a living so i have zero complaints and for those who are unfamiliar with where we're recording, that is here in Denver, Colorado. If you are a Denver resident and you want to learn a little bit about the grappling arts, this is the man you want to talk to. Check out their website. Find them on Facebook. Easy man to find. Easy school to find. Heck of a lot of fun if you go down there. Heck yeah. NovamenteBJJ.com. And you may wonder, Nick, it's a pro wrestling history podcast. Why do you talk about martial arts so much? Well, first of all, shut up. How dare you question my methods? Second of all, martial arts and pro wrestling have been kissing cousins, both in spectacle and athleticism and presentation and entertainment value for decades, if not centuries. And one of the biggest questions that comes up both with pro wrestling and with martial arts is where the heck do I learn this stuff? Because since the martial arts explosion in pop culture back in the 1970s, when a little movie called Enter the Dragon entered the Western canon of well-known pieces of cinema, everyone then wanted to learn Kung Fu. Everybody wanted to be Bruce Lee. But where on earth do you learn Kung Fu? When you start watching the Japanese karate movies, where would you learn karate? Because sometimes you'd live in a major city where there would be a Chinatown or a little Tokyo or a guy named Ralph who claimed to get his black belt while he was in the army and he's opened up shop at a strip mall. You can go in. There's a tasteful backdrop with a box 
bonsai tree painted on the wall, but more often than not, you lived in a smaller town or a smaller city or maybe someplace rural, and you couldn't exactly track down the great master who lives on the mountain and will teach you the tiger style, so you had to find yourself a copy of books like Learning Karate and Seven Easy Steps, the Tao of Jeet Kune Do, various books on Aikido or Judo, or you get into the super weirdos who claim to be ninja masters, Ashita Kim, I am looking at you. And we live in a very easy, blessed, wonderful time in the year of our Lord 2024 because martial arts schools have become prolific, not necessarily always on the same grounds quality-wise, but that's something we'll talk about a little bit later, because once upon a time, you couldn't even find a good karate school in your town, let alone a good boxing, kickboxing, or jiu-jitsu school. How easy was it for you when you found out about Brazilian jiu-jitsu to get good instruction? Um, it was a lot easier. Um, I remember seeing, like, growing up, the, uh, the yard signs for East and jiu-jitsu, and then I remember seeing them in an old Taco Bell building that was just covered in steam every time my parents would drive by I go what are they doing over there because it was just steamed it was like the scene in Titanic just people's hands touching the, the windows and just <laughs> sliding down and you're like I don't know what's happening um, but I think I had to look up my first gym in a phone book and like just find it call them just cold call and just hope for the best and I was 20 at the time so I don't know why I was so nervous but I was it was crazy to think now that I had to just look it up in the paper and be like, can I come learn how to fight people? So. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it, now it's a lot easier. You have things like the internet. You can type in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or Judo or Muay Thai, whatever flavor of awesome, the way you want to spend your time. You can just search that out. You can find it if it's in your town. You can find out where you need to travel if it's not. Sometimes you can find training groups that are kind of peer-reviewed and not necessarily of the highest quality. We'll talk about that later as well. But originally, it was the training books. You kind of had a little bit of a boom after World War II where people would be like, hey, I learned a little bit of judo, probably about the equivalent of a blue belt, but they could show you the demonstration of how to do it in four steps. Good luck actually executing such a technique to the point where it was so saturated that even if you watch the movie The Karate Kid, Daniel-san, at the start of the first movie, is teaching himself how to throw front kicks with a book in front of him. So that really was the starting point for many martial artists in the 80s and also in the 90s. The Tao of Jeet Kune Do belonged on the bookshelf of everybody who watched Enter the Dragon one too many times, myself included. Did you ever read that one? I never read it, but my dad was big into it, so I'm, I'm sure I've looked at it a few times. It's one of those books that's so strange because it's such like an iconic manual for combat philosophy if you will yeah. but when you look at it and you you know at least somewhat know what you're doing at a certain point you go wait a minute this is just all just the random scribblings yeah. and notes this was like his journal his yeah. his notes his unpublished works so it's never a okay this is how you throw a punch this is how you do this it's yeah. like oh here's a philosophy on how to blend a back fist from wing chun with a savat kick yeah. and unless you know what savat is, how to execute a kick in savat, and how to do a little bit of Wing Chun. This is all just meaningless. Yeah. 
but it's the favorite was the favorite book of kids with rat tails, switchblades, and poor parental supervision. Yeah, I always thought Savant was the uh, bad guy from Street Fighter with the eye patch. Oh, so yeah. I never knew what a Savant what Savant was because uh, I again assumed it was a character in a video game. Yeah, and it's and it's also one of those things. We'll talk about this in a bit in depth about how the more obscure a martial art was, the more sexy and you know exotic it felt because in the 90s we had movies like Bloodsport and tournament movies like that where the hero more often than not Jean-Claude Van Damme entering the tournament and there's the guy who knows monkey kung fu and the guy who does salat and the guy who is a sumo wrestler and even if you go further back to Shaw Brothers Kung Fu movies, it would always be like, oh, how do you become the unbeatable badass? Will you travel to the furthest mountain, to the temple at the top of the mountain, where the old master will teach you the pelican duck style that will defeat all of the Wu-Tang Clan? So there did become a certain psychological point where we started thinking that something was more dangerous and more authentic because it was exotic and was only known to like four people. But as anyone who has spent time on a wrestling mat, a jujitsu match, in a boxing, kickboxing ring, if you're only working with your four friends, you're not making a lot of progress overall. Yeah. I uh, only recently saw Bloodsport because I don't watch movies. So I watched it, I think, in 2021 was the first time I'd ever seen it. And, like, seeing those movies, it's like uh, caricatures of the styles. Like, the Muay Thai guy has the most upright elbow stance imaginable that, like, when you think of Muay Thai, that's exactly what they did. They had the monkey guy, the karate guy was, like, the most side stance you could possibly be, only throwing sidekicks. The American boxers, like, brawling style. It was was wild to see from a modern perspective back then because I never saw it back then, so it would have blown my mind. So now that I know a little bit, it's like, this is like the most one-to-one reaction of this style that you could possibly get. Yeah, and it's very funny because you speak of the Muay Thai practitioner in Bloodsport. The guy who played that character was a legit European Muay Thai champion. And all I could think as an adult watching that and knowing that is how much did he have to like dial it back and kind of like work on his posture because and it's funny I'm doing it like yeah. I'm holding my arms yeah. out like the cartoonish Muay Thai video game character where he probably had to dial that back to cartoonish levels and probably thought it was hilarious doing what he was doing yeah. to make it appear that way but how many kids probably myself included saw that and then went out in the backyard with their arms out oh, yeah. in that position tapping their toe looking like Saget from Street Fighter 2. So, yes, there was a whole generation that learned about these exotic arts from video games, from movies, and then went out to the backyard to practice these often completely impractical techniques with their friends, almost like backyard pro wrestling. Yeah, it was was wild, like, just thinking of how many kids went and threw those 360 spinning uh, sweep kicks out in the backyard to try and knock somebody over. And it's like, that takes like 15 seconds to do. Nobody's <laughs> going to fall over to that. You're going to get kicked in the head more often than not just by trying to spin through. And that will be a recurring theme of what we talk about today, which is the importance of proper training. And 
obviously watching a movie or playing a video game and trying to recreate it with your friends, probably not the best way. Learning from books, probably not the best way. But when VCRs became commonplace in most homes and consumer VHS tapes became an easier thing to make and market, it was a big boom for low-budget horror movies. You know, ask Lloyd Kaufman how Troma blew up because of that. Pornography was a lot easier to distribute, as was martial arts instruction, because it was very easy to produce a martial arts training video as opposed to making that kind of book. Because a book, you have to convince a publisher, you have to take the still photos, you have to write it out, you have to make sure you use the right versions of your, your, there, there, and there. And printing a book is not a necessarily expensive task, but if you're making 200 copies, it can sometimes run into some bucks. Meanwhile, you could get a pack of VHS tapes for about $15 US currency back in those days, and then making the thing, well, guess what? All you need is your dojo, your quoon, wherever you practiced, a, a gi that has recently been washed for the sake of presentation and your partner, somebody to do moves with, and maybe a fern to kind of tie the room together. Otherwise, you're just doing in front of a camera what you are probably doing all day anyway. Yeah, it's, um, you need like a separate room for the giant cameras back in the day, like the, the big supercomputer, make sure you have two chairs holding it up. But yeah, you just walk into a room and just film yourself, hoping that you're in frame because no one could see what they were doing. You got to do a move, stop the camera, run, rewind it, and then make sure you're at the same point so you don't copy over. But yeah, it was, it's, I just remember the, the black belt magazines back in the day. And like all of those, like getting, seeing the VHSs in those, you're like, it's only two payments of $24.99 to get random karate guys four steps to being a karate king lion master. And it's like, eh, I never got those, but man, I did enjoy seeing them. I like to think there was at least one kid who got his first stripe on his white belt for being the camera operator on a couple oh, yeah. of these things. Yeah, oh yeah, you would hope so there. They're, hopefully, it's probably their kid because he's the only one that could be there on the off times. Like, the 80s were a different time with kids and adults, but hopefully it was the instructor's kid, and then they give him right up, right up, right out of the way. Yeah, it's like, hey, Dad, shouldn't I be going to school today? It's like, you don't need school. Kung fu is all you will ever need. Just wait till this VHS hits the shelves. They'll be flying off. <laughs> you won't have to do anything. I'll buy you any Camaro you want, anything you need. It's yours. There's nothing else we have to do. And as he said, looking through Black Belt Magazine, Inside Karate, Inside Kung Fu, all the various martial arts magazines that you would find on the rack at that time was a fascinating dive into a world you did not necessarily understand, but you wanted to be a part of. I compare it similarly to being a kid and reading Fangoria Magazine if you were a horror kid, where you'd look at the VHSs of these extreme horror movies that you could never find at the rental place. And if you could trust the mail with a money order for $60, they would send you a copy of Last House on the Left that your mother would confiscate almost immediately, and honestly, rightfully so. But in those magazines, you would have the catalogs for the various gear companies, glove companies, and 
the king of all video productions was Panther Productions. For martial arts nerds, there was nothing more fascinating than flipping through the catalog or the advertisements for Panther Productions. They handled a lot of the creation and distribution for martial arts videos of just about any kind. It was amazing to be a kid, 10, 11, 12, relishing the ability to possibly learn monkey kung fu, hungar, ninjutsu, iron palm, or the, quote, official fighting style of the Navy SEALs or Green Berets, somehow taught by 15 different guys, 15 different ways, all wearing combat boots and camouflage pants. So you would have guys who were teaching correspondence courses, one-off videos on Muay Thai boxing, documentaries about what happened at Lupini Stadium in 1992. You would have the ability to order all of this, have it sent to your house, a world of knowledge of the martial arts. And when, again, you're a kid who grew up watching 80s and 90s kung fu, karate, ninja movies, this is like finding out Santa is real and he will deliver year-round. Yeah, I'm also noticing, I saw just now on this uh, Panther Productions that you can master floor fighting, which you have never heard of before, but I need to master because I do like to lay down a lot, so I do need to make sure that if anyone attacks me, I'm ready to go. Yeah, I, I sent him the 1992 Panther Productions catalog, and one of the things I saw, and he, he noticed this too, was master floor fighting, which looked like a weird form of breakdancing, because it's not grappling. It's not shooting a single, working for position, working for a submission. It's lying on your side and throwing kicks upward. And I'm not saying it's completely ineffective, but I have my concerns. Yeah. I, th I feel like uh, back in the day, if you could do the splits or throw a kick above your head, then you could get featured in any of these magazines. Like. Oh, 100%. Um, there's a very early episode of the show that I did where we talked about blood sport, about Frank Dukes, and how amazing it must have been to live in the pre-internet pre-fact check martial arts world yep. where yes if you just showed up with a sleeveless gi and you could throw a somewhat decent kick and had a tale of winning a tournament in the orient chances are one of these publications would write an article yeah. about you you'd have a full section dedicated to just you because you can throw a, a spinning heel kick once you've never landed it on anybody that's actually trying but man in slow-mo on the those 90s cameras it looks incredible and in that 1992 Panther catalog, there were amazing series for whatever art you might be interested in. They had Kyokushin Karate, Volumes 1 through 8, featuring Andy Hoog. If you are unfamiliar with Andy Hoog, by all means, go to YouTube and watch some goddamn highlights and furl before your eyes. There was an eight-tape set with Benny the Jet Yurkides for kickboxing. You know, then it would be... That it would be mastering Aikido, praying mantis kung fu, and I am intrigued by the mantis sparring te techniques. Oh team. yeah. So who doesn't want to do a mantis sparring technique? Yeah, I want to watch that just to see two guys sparring using using praying mantis kung fu. I don't know why that's turning me on a little, yeah. but I'm a do, very do they cut? Does whoever lose, do they get their head cut off at oh, the end? It, I assume it's intergender spot. Oh, okay, cool. It's the only thing that makes sense. As long sense. as it's full Mantis and we get the, the decapitation at the end of the round, then I'm in. 
There was Paul Vunak teaching Jeet Kune Do. I bought those, of course, because I was a Kung Fu kid. Larry Tatum, When Kempo Strikes. Tony Blower's Panic Attack series. A side note, I fought one of his students at a really shitty, like, early MMA event in, like, 1998. That's crazy. And one that I wish I would have in front of me that I could still watch, which was Judo Gene LaBelle's Pro Wrestling Finishing Holds. I bought that because Gene LaBelle being a legend in martial arts, I really wasn't a wrestling kid anymore or yet again as my life has progressed. So I didn't appreciate Gene LaBelle spending a 90-minute tape not showing how to get into these positions, not showing any transitions or setups, just showing off like a hundred different pro wrestling finishing holds like today i would love that but back in the day i was like i spent 60 dollars on this and yeah. i don't know how i feel about that yeah it's like it's like those adult films where it's just the compilation of the end of the video and you're like how did we get here what's the, <laughs> what's the journey here I, i'm okay I, you have his arm behind his head how did this happen why why am i here can i just walk up to somebody take their head take their hand behind their head and just start yanking on it or do I need to do something else? I'm very confused. And I'm not sure if you're talking about finishing holds or the porn. Who knows? They're interchangeable. There were also series by Superfoot Bill Wallace. So all these guys were top names in their field, legitimate champions in sport karate, kickboxing, judo, wrestling. And all these guys would be featured in the big articles, the cover stories for Inside Kung Fu, Black Belt, and all these magazines. So there really was a incredible wealth of information that you could find in all of these you could also find the more exotic stuff like balasong which is filipino butterfly knife fighting pencat salat which is an indonesian art savat which is french kickboxing i actually did a little research on savat not too long ago savat came into being because for a while in france it was a serious felony level crime to get into a fight and punch a person so people being clever in their maliciousness started developing more of a kicking art. And that's why with Savat, all the kicks are built around wearing shoes because you're actually kicking with the point of the shoe oh. as opposed to like Muay Thai where you're kicking with the shin. So all their kicks are based upon hitting somebody with your work boots hmm. in the gut and not throwing any punches. So it's like kick fencing. And frankly, now I'm way more intrigued by it than yeah. I would have been back in these they, days. If they would have called it kick fencing, I would have definitely looked into it more often. Who doesn't want to do kick fencing? I want to do kick fencing right now. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. After this, we'll do it. And there were also weird offerings like SWAT team training videos, which was 20 tapes deep. Oh, my God. There was bodybuilding programs and, of course, many videos on how to master the splits, which was a Jean-Claude Van Damme-fueled 90s fad. Yes, sir. In those days, the only way you knew you were a legit martial arts badass is if you could pop down into the splits or possibly do it between two chairs. Yeah. Also, I see the Lion Dances of China, which who doesn't want to learn the authentic and rarely seen Lion Dances of China? Can you imagine the weird kid that bought that? Oh, yeah. Probably trying to impress the exchange student at his yeah. middle school, spent all summer long doing that, and then shows up and tries to turn that into his prom date pitch ask, oh, yeah. where he makes like the big movie spectacle, the big romantic gesture of doing the Chinese lion dance over to this girl, 
and then asking her to prom and she's like uh bro i'm from i'm from korea this is weird yeah. i don't even know where you're coming with this i'm gonna go over here now please don't follow me yeah, i'm a foreign exchange student from canada i don't know why <laughs> i'm just my parents are asian i don't know why you're doing these dances in front of me oh geez i'm really not sure what to do about this don't you know don't you know oh, oh i'm sorry that you spent your time to do this oh no and again, the exoticism of many of these arts are what made them so enticing to the consumer. I'm not going to lie, 13-year-old me did a lot of lawn maintenance in the neighborhood so I could give my mom my earnings so she would write a check to Panther Productions for the ninjutsu series that I desperately wanted. And... This was like a weird, I mean, there's no such thing, I'm just going to say it as a blanket statement, there's no such thing as real ninjutsu. Everybody who is trying to sell you on their ninjutsu lineage, they're just karate guys who bought a black gi and a Halloween mask and saw enter the ninja one too many times, but not Ninja 3 The Domination nearly enough. Truly a great film. Yes. But this series was primarily like weird militia living somewhere in Nebraska. The guy was from Omaha. Scott Morris from UFC 2 and Steve Jenham from UFC 3 were students of this guy's, apparently. Nice, nice. But it was primarily, like, the fighting style was, like, run at them as fast as you can and just, like, do the one kick, the one punch, and then they freeze and leads you to, like, hit them <laughs> 900 times and then put them in a wrist lock. Yeah. Or it was like, how do you climb the rope fence and then crouch down in a shadow to disappear? But when you're a 12-year-old boy, that is how you want to spend your summer no matter what. Oh, yeah. You're jumping into all the bushes you can to get away from all your, all your enemies so you can leap out and choke them from behind and, and throw your ninja stars at them into the tree to scare them and then kick them in the back of the knee and, and wrist lock them until they give up all their secrets. <laughs> Where did you get the Nintendo power that taught me how to beat Castlevania 2? I can't even get my game to start. I can't blow hard enough. And these tapes were not prohibitively expensive. In the early 90s, mid-90s, they were $50, $60. But add inflation to that, that's about $100 today. But hey, when you're a kid mowing lawns, working at Arby's selling drugs, whatever it is you kids were into, I don't know. That was still considerable amount of money, but when you didn't have bills to pay, you had thrills to buy. You could get that Iron Palm training series and destroy your hands before uh, you had to go back to school for ninth grade. Oh yeah, you buy that thing, you post on the wall and then just hit it with your knuckles to toughen it up. You hit it twice and then you're already like red and you're like, I'm, I'm good, I don't, I'll, hit, I'll come back tomorrow, I'm not quite ready. I remember looking at one of those series in Inside Kung Fu, and it was like, oh, you get this bag of special sand to slam your palm into, and then Chinese lotion rub into your palm to undo the damage. And I was like, guys, maybe just, I don't know, hit them with a shovel. Yeah. It just seems easier. Just I'm going to make that instructional tape, how to hit a guy with a shovel. Yeah, how to pick up a baseball bat and hit somebody with it. It's only three VHSs. I'm going to sell VHSs today. But everything in this market changed in 1994 with a little event called the Ultimate Fighting Championship. You probably heard about this, I, right? I, once or twice, yeah. One of my greatest claims to shame is my friend invited me to go to it. Oh, 
his him and his dad were gonna go. And and he's like, oh yeah, we're gonna go watch this like karate thing in Denver. You wanna come? Because I was a kung fu kid, so yeah. of course he thought I'd be interested. I assumed it was like the sabaki, like an enshin or kyokushin type of karate thing, and which I'm not against philosophically, but that just wasn't how I wanted to spend my Saturday. Turns out I blew the opportunity to go to the most iconic first event for a sport possibly in American history. Yay me, I'm stupid. Yeah. My my weird not really claim to fame, my dad worked security at the first UFC event, so technically I can be like, yeah, my dad was, he worked the first UFC event. (laughs) <laughs> but he was facing the wrong, the opposite direction the whole time, making sure that nobody came in. So he wasn't really watching, but he was there. So that's all that matters. And after the first UFC, there was a new term, a new name, and a new martial arts that was on the lips of everyone in the martial arts world, and that was Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. Notice I don't say Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, as many people would say today, because People a lot of times will think of the UFC as like the start of a new sport, the beginning of a new competitive era, when in reality, Horion Gracie created this as a live infomercial for the Torrance Academy and his family's specific close family style of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the Elio Gracie lineage. Uh, Do you want to kind of chime in on how that breaks down, your opinion on that? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely, watching any sort of documentary about it, it was so clearly an infomercial for Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. They wouldn't even, they didn't even want to put the strongest member in, which was Hickson, the most, like, you know, accomplished one. They, like, picked, like, who's the weakest? Who's the smallest one that we can put in to show the effectiveness of Jiu-Jitsu? So it's, it's crazy that, like, how focused on one thing the UFC was initially. It's like, yeah, we're, we're doing all this other uh, – we'll have this crazy guy in a, in a wife beater and we'll have this boxer, but it was strictly focused on jiu-jitsu. So it was – it's crazy. Because as I said, it wasn't really about launching a sport. It was creating a spectacle. It was making the world believers, not just in jiu-jitsu, but the Elio Gracie, Horion-managed version of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Again, this is pre-internet, pre-social media, pre-ability to fact-check. So Carlos and Carlson, like we don't really know who those people are. I've never heard of them. Uh, Elio's my my father's the guy who invented it all. Yeah. I don't know why you would think otherwise. And they had done great work before with the Gracie in Action VHS tapes, which again were infomercials as brutal spectacle. For those of you who might be too young or don't remember, it was two VHSs, again, kind of expensive, but worth it at the time, where they put out open challenges where they would give big cash prizes to anyone who could beat a member of the Gracie family in a real fight under the terms and conditions that they get to videotape it for their own commercial purposes. So you could buy these tapes that were shot on shitty recorders in the Torrance Academy or someone's garage or someone's basement to watch Hickson, Hoyler, that whole side of the family fighting karate, boxer, street fighter, goofballs, which again was a great way to advertise your school because that's ultimately what it all came back to is trying to create a student base because fighting, unless you are top of the line, top of the hill, wearing championship gold, 
and a big star doesn't always pay the bills, you might have heard. Yeah. It was, uh, those Gracie and actions were funny because it was just them, like, you know, jiu-jitsu means the gentle art or roughly means that. And all these videos were like them dojo starving these karate gyms and just beating the shit out of these guys just trying to make a living and showing them that they're useless. And it's like, man, this is, uh, it's a rough way for, to take one person's living away from somebody like, oh yeah, now my students are going to watch me get beat up and now they're going to take away my living and they're going to make a bigger living because of it. So it's, it's, it was hard to get paid. It's still hard to get paid in martial arts now, but back then it was like, cool. If you didn't have a gym, you weren't making anything. So having somebody come beat you up in your gym really didn't help. And there is a, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you feel about it, a long history of that. That's why there's so many stories and movies where the new kung fu teacher comes to the new town and he sets up the platform and challenges everyone to come test his kung fu because that's how he's going to steal all the students over to him. Same thing, uh, the dojo storming concept, which happened a lot in Japanese Kyokushin circles. When all the Masuyama Kyokushin guys wanted to prove how tough they were, they proved it by beating up other karate guys. In the United States, you had similar things in the 70s and the 80s. You had crazy guys running into other dojos to beat the shit out of the instructor, to shame him and steal all the students away. You even saw this in the jiu-jitsu era, again, where you would have the blue belt going in and challenging the taekwondo black belt in front of all the students because it's now almost a cultural thing to do. It's not necessarily something he's trying to benefit from by taking away his students. He's just an asshole. Yeah, yeah. the, the dojo storming concept is like, how big of a dick can I be? to this one human being. How much can I ruin his life? I know he's a 40 year old guy who's spent his life trying to learn this and he finally built up enough to open this academy and put his work in and getting students and now he's gonna get beat up by some 20 year old blue belt from Brazil just because he exists. Yeah, it's something where you kind of can get lost in the romanticism of the martial arts conflict and tradition but we're not living in a movie these are just people trying to pay their bills with the skills that they have developed and everybody was being assholes trying to take that away from them not even for their own financial purpose but just for their weird ego adventure in the movie that's only playing in their head starring themselves and yeah there's there is a certain like i remember a comedian talking about why he got sober and he said have you ever told all your best stories and you're the cunt in them? Yeah. He was Australian, so of course he said it that yeah, way. But yeah, it's like if you're telling all your cool adventure stories and you're the bad guy, maybe it's time to reconsider how your martial arts journey is treating you. You're like, like good job, dude. You're you're the asshole in everything. Like you're the guy that everyone's like, yeah, some dude came in and kicked me in the stomach for no reason. Like I was just teaching class and then he walked in and pushed me over. Like, yeah, good good on you, bud. You look awesome. But putting the negative side of the influence of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu in action, 
Horion Gracie was a marketing genius. He was absolutely brilliant. He still is brilliant. He's still alive. I don't know why I'm saying it past tense, just because we're talking about the 90s. And it does make a lot of sense when you realize that the man who taught the Gracie family judo was a Kodakon black belt. And Kano, he wanted judo to be taught all over the world, so he took a lot of his black belts and almost sent them out like Mormons on their mission to teach the world judo, and almost all of them found themselves in the world of professional wrestling. And Count Koma was definitely among them. He kind of intermingled with the catch-as-catch-can style when he was wrestling in England at a lot of the Alhambra theater wrestling shows. He was in Mexico. one point, he was wearing a mask as the Japanese jiu-jitsu champion taking on all comers. He made his way to Brazil, where he taught Carlos and Elio Gracie the art of judo, which morphed into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, because a lot of those techniques had been cooked through the lens of how wrestling was done. Um, because, again, he had been working with so much catch wrestling, competing under catch wrestling rules, but one thing the Gracies definitely learned from Count Coma is the importance of showmanship, the importance of mythology, the importance of how you present yourself, your ability, your product to the general public when it comes time to sell tickets, get students through the door, and generally get a little bit of notoriety and fame. Yeah. It, um, just seeing it now, it's like, yeah, they had a very good product and they knew exactly how to market it perfectly like something that had been seen before that they tweaked into their own style and made it to where it's like hey you need this not just hey this is cool like this is something that you need if you want to survive in the world look at all these other tough guys we beat all of them so now you have to learn this thing and it's like that's the best marketing that you could imagine and he put himself in positions where he got to teach the LAPD. He put himself into being the fight coordinator for Lethal Weapon. So he had a good following of students and admirers in LA, but after the first UFC, and even after the second UFC, even more so, everyone wanted to learn Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, but where on earth do you learn this? This was 1994, 1995, there was the Gracie Academy in Torrance. There was the uh, Machado's teaching as well. But there really wasn't a whole lot going on as far as places where you could learn. And Horion cashed in on the VHS market. In 1992, he actually had his first series of introducing Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. And then he had his beginner and intermediate and advanced series. And again, these things were like $50, $60 a pop. I think it was like six tapes per level. This was a significant investment, but it was still cheaper than going and signing up for classes at the academy. So there really was a certain amount of great value that you could get out of this. Because again, if you were in Denver and you wanted to learn jujitsu, well, there were great grappling schools. There was Grappler's Edge. There were some guys still doing stuff at TSKO. 
but there was no Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And you can have that argument about whether a good judo school is as good as this or whatever. But at that time, there was nothing sexier, nothing more marketable, nothing more wanted by the martial arts community as a whole than to learn Gracie jiu-jitsu. And they sold a lot of those cassettes. Yeah. Um, that and like the just the Gracie Bible, I'm not entirely sure what they called it, the book that went along with it so you could watch and read and do all that stuff at the same time and just seeing it done. Um, I mean, you could start to make a living or at least start to like somebody had those tapes six months before somebody else and then they can start teaching their friends and then now it starts to grow from there even though they're not very experienced. He's able, since he's four tapes ahead of his friends, he's now the master. So it, it makes him look a lot better as well. It's, and you could do things like what I did, which is buy the tape, so hook up a second VCR, make copies of it, and sell them for 10 bucks to all the friends at school. So I had quite the little racket, and when I get a notice from the Torrance Academy here in a little bit saying that I owe them money, well, it'll all make sense at that point. But yes, this was a great way to get information into your brain about a martial art you really wanted to learn, but didn't really have the capacity to do so. And yes, there were also correspondence courses. There were, with the Panther Production catalog, you could have the correspondence where you do your Kung Fu form or your Karate Kata. You should see the arm movements that yeah. I'm doing. I look like I'm doing a robot dance. They're very high quality. And then videotape yourself doing them and send them back to the instructor. And they go, cool, your form is very nice. Go ahead and buy yourself a blue belt. You've earned it. But it's a little bit harder to do that with sports-based, competition-based martial arts. Because how do you show your instructor how good you are at setting up a triangle from guard outside of just that kind of how you're learning it? Like, okay, you sit in the guard, you shift this way, one leg up this way. There's, you can't be graded on how you are rolling, how you are performing in, in competition. It's literally mailing in yourself doing white belt level armbar from mount. And that's very antithetical to how most jujitsu belts are awarded in an actual dojo. Like how do you, how do you um, advance people yourself? Um, I, I look at one, they're sort of... Uh like dedication to learning, depending on what they what else they do in life. Like some people want to be competitors. Some people just want to do it um, as something they can do after work and to get away from their kids for an hour or so. So um, I do it based on like how hard they're trying, if they're able to actually do the techniques against a person who's uh, trying a little bit. It doesn't have to be a full on, like the kid who wrestled in high school and the 55 year old guy that's just there to uh, do it with his son are not the same. So um, just judging on whether or not they can think in the moment and like, oh yeah, you're trying to do that. It may have not worked out, but at least you're thinking. It's not just arms up in the air and flailing and going, I don't know what I'm doing. Oh God. So I'm just looking at, you know, some, some base level competence is how I look at it. And if you're listening to what he's saying and thinking, how could you see that on a VHS tape of somebody demonstrating jiu-jitsu technique? I don't think you can. No, I don't think you can. It's hard to, because uh, there's no feedback. It's like I can do a triangle on my friend when we watch, 
but I may not be doing it right. And it's like, yeah, he tapped, but is it because he's just not used to the technique? Like I'm just kind of pulling on his neck and it hurts? Or am I actually doing this to where I could legitimately choke somebody with my legs? There's no, you can't ask the tape and have it go like, oh yeah, you need to adjust here. It's just, you're hoping. And it's, it's hard to see from an outside perspective. Yeah, because most of the gyms that I have been part of over my, back when I would do jiu-jitsu and submission wrestling, it's like, oh, well, you can now compete with blue belts of your weight. Cool, well, you know, you're winning about 50-50, here's your blue belt. So long as you can swim in those waters, you're given the fins to do so. That's a weird way to put it, but I'm going to stick with it. Like, I remember I got my purple because I passed a black belt guard once. Oh, nice. And as other members of the Gracie family moved to the United States, they also joined in on this craze with Henzo Gracie and Craig Kukuk's 11-tape series being one of the best ones. Those are the ones I had and loved dearly. Halif and Cesar also had a great series. So everybody was starting to get together, starting to cash in. Other BJJ standouts like Joe Moreira, Valid Ismail, Kazeka Muniz, who actually had some of the earliest videos on the market. Omri Batech, Mario Sperry, and many others. And many, as you may notice, had limited success in No Holds Barred slash MMA at the time, but their knowledge of the ground game was still valuable and still sought out. Because a guy like Omri Batech, whose big fight was getting murked by Don Fry, who was twice the size of him, and it's fully understandable to take that loss, that was his only real marquee fight on pay-per-view, but that man was a phenomenal jiu-jitsu practitioner and still was able to be a successful coach, have a good jiu-jitsu career, and sell a lot of VHS tapes. Yeah. It seems like if you had a fight, regardless of whether or not you won, there was kind of that, uh, like, oh, that guy fought. Like, he's, he's cool as shit because he fought. Oh, how, how did it go? It doesn't matter. He was just, I watched him fight somebody, and now I want to learn from that guy. Like, yeah, because all you had to do was put UFC competitor yeah. on the box, and it would move. It's kind of like, again, in pro wrestling, former WWE star, yeah. and it's a guy like, who? Oh, he lost 900 matches in a row during dark matches. Yeah, he was, but he was still a WWE star. He was on SmackDown once. He got the jobber entrance and uh, lost in a minute and a half. They didn't even say his name, but... He technically was in WWE. And if you fast forward on your VCR a few years down the road, every UFC fighter, like we were just saying, who got slightly famous or successful would have a series. Some genuinely instructive, like Marco Hulas, Boss Rutten, and Don Fry, and others, like Kimo Leopoldo's fierce fighting 12 DVD set, where you too can learn destructive chokes and a warrior's workout and conditioning routine. Because if Kimo Leopoldo was known for one thing, it was never running out of gas yeah, in the he, cage. He was a he was a machine. He never once got tired. Not at all. I hope also that he teaches you how to ch- carry a giant cross to the ring. CrossFit. Yeah. Hey. Yes. Very nice. And there were plenty of fraudsters who were willing to exploit the market in the pre-internet fact-check age. I had a VHS about leg locks. This guy called himself the king of the leg locks. And after watching Ken Shamrock fight a few times in Pancrase, I'm like, oh man, I gotta learn, I gotta learn some some leg locks. So I got this thing. Me and my friends were tossing each other around because we were just teaching ourselves grappling with whatever VHS tapes I could afford in my parents' basement. 
it was a hell of a lot of fun. But then years later, after I studied with one of Bart Vale's guys, and I legitimately knew a lot about leg locks, I watched this thing, and I'm like, this motherfucker. Like, he is doing bad, bad leg lock setups. They were a lot more pro wrestling than they were actually applicable leg locks. There was a lot of, like, little... You just watch the details on how this guy set up things, and you're like, you really took one class did you you said this isn't good but in a way i admire it because he had the confidence to make this put it on for sale confidently looking at the camera saying he knows what he's doing and probably made a few thousand dollars oh yeah the the uh just confidence to like walk into a room and start talking to everybody is really all you needed to make a, a vhs back in the day like hey i've tapped out one guy with an ankle lock so now I'm the king of them. You're like, I know nothing about the actual position. I know nothing if they do this initial defense. But hey, you don't have to know that. I don't know that. I'm just, I'm the king. No one questions the king. Why yeah. would you question the king? Yeah, nobody in Lafayette has ever seen a leg lock before. Yeah. I know two leg locks. Therefore, royalty. Yeah, royalty. No, everyone's going to tap out because literally no one's seen any of this before. So it doesn't matter if it's the worst technique you've ever seen in your life. You're probably going to tap because your foot hurts a little bit. (laughs) And there was also a lot of nonsense, both in video format and articles, about the hidden ground fighting of karate and kung fu or the anti-grappling for traditional martial arts. I will forever remember the reverse punch to the top of the head or the spinning hook kick to the head to stop a double leg shot from an issue of Inside Kung Fu. They were demonstrating all the ways to stop a double leg takedown from a wrestler. And one was the Shotokan guy, which was step back, reverse punch to their head as they come barreling in. And then the Taekwondo guy showing the spinning hook kick to catch the guy in the head as he's coming in off of a double. And... All I could think was just like, oh, sweetie, no. Like, (laughs) Like, oh, God, oh, that's going to get you hurt more. (laughs) There's no way you're going to defend anything. I think there's that old fight. It might have been Travis Fulton back in the day when he's fighting that really skinny guy. And he goes for the takedown, and he just starts elbowing him in the back of the head and then proceeds to get thrown onto his own head. And you're like, ah, yes, there we go. That's why there's no, like, oh, yeah, let me just elbow him, and he'll immediately stop. And why would anybody put themselves front and center, making fraudulent claims about their martial arts capacity, their technical skill, their biography? Money. Once again, money makes the world go round, makes the spin kicks go round. And if you had the ability to put out one of these tapes and you were not even necessarily running a school, you were still passive income coming in off of these sometimes ludicrous instructional videotapes. And how lucrative could they be? Well, nothing confirmed, but the standard rumor is that Craig Kukuk and Henzo Gracie's falling out was because of the profit split of those VHS tapes. Because again, when you could not find jujitsu schools in most cities, their tapes became kind of the biggest ones that everybody wanted. I know I wanted them. I had them. Everybody else wanted them. So they made some good bank off of probably an afternoon's worth of labor and whatever VHS tapes and like a sticker to put on the box was costing. Yeah. So yes, they were making some very good money in the days before you had a jiu-jitsu school in most major towns. 
And one thing I do want to talk about as we kind of start wrapping this up is what you can and can't learn from videos. The two that I really loved weren't even jujitsu tapes. It was Rob Kamen's kickboxing, Rob Kamen being a legendary Dutch kickboxer. And I got a lot out of that. But the main reason was I was doing kickboxing at the time. Yeah. So I was already in a Muay Thai gym. I was a junior in high school. So learning a whole bunch of new bag drills and pad drills and clinch drills was very beneficial because I was already doing that. This was just giving me more information and more training to do when it was just free time on the bags. Same thing with the Boss Rutten boxing and kickboxing ones. I still actually use Boss Rutten's audio for his boxing workouts along with uh, the Teddy Atlas one that I'll do a lot when I'm just training at home because they are solid. But if you've never thrown a low kick, you've never neck wrestled tie style, if you've never done Western boxing, so you don't really know how to torque off of a two and throw it into a one, a lot of this is going to be lost on you. And that's striking arts. Striking arts you can do by yourself. Grappling arts you absolutely could not. Yeah. Um, I mean, they have, like, grappling dummies, but there's there's zero uh, coming back at you, which I think is the biggest thing for grappling is that you need a, another human being to at least, even, even if they're not trying their hardest, you need them to react in certain ways. Because if you put your arm on somebody and they move a little bit, then you're like, oh, okay, that changes how I approach this. And it's like you need that, that reaction from somebody else before um, – you know what you're actually doing. And there are also instructors, not every good fighter is a teacher, not every good teacher is a good fighter, because there are many instructors, like in boxing, Customato and Teddy Atlas were never famous fighters themselves, but they were amazing coaches that took other guys to their heights. And then you also have fighters that put out VHS tapes or DVDs or digital downloads now, like Mike Tyson put out a series on his style of peekaboo boxing, and he can demonstrate it, but he can't teach it. There are a lot of guys who can do that, where they can show you how to do it, but they can't instruct you off of your body on how to do it. And if you don't learn it from them showing the one setup they know, they're not really able to communicate that. But because it's Mike Tyson, it's going to sell a million copies and make a lot of money no matter what. Yeah. It's like, uh, what's the, those who can't teach or whatever is that, that saying? But it's like somebody who can explain it for everybody, I think, is, is what is needed for, to really learn something. Like if you, a bunch of people that have never seen something before all try and figure it out at the same time. It's like, yeah, you're eventually going to get there, but you might miss some certain aspects of it where it's like if you have somebody who can actually break it down then it's like oh yeah that makes it a lot easier for me than it would be to somebody go like yeah you just punch you you throw an uppercut you throw a hook and then you throw a straight and you're like but why am i throwing that well because it goes uppercut hook and then straight you're like but why yeah yeah because it's an uppercut a hook and then a straight like that doesn't answer anything exactly because i've had striking coaches like that i got really lucky i made a bit of a jump and i went to la went for a little while when i was young and i got to train at the beverly hills jiu jitsu club so i got to take classes with boss rootin for about six straight months 
And that's a man who can explain the body mechanics of everything you're doing very, very well. Yeah. He'll explain like, okay, you're fully twisted this way and you're pushing off of your toes here and that's what's bringing it back over here to give it maximum power. And that's why the body mechanics of coming this way with a hook is going to be a lot more powerful if you're like flexing this weird muscle over on this side. So he was amazing at communicating those little details because yeah, sometimes somebody's a great coach but a bad fighter or a great fighter and a bad coach but there are a lot of people who are amazing at both i was lucky enough that i got to work with him for a while and i did kind of get to exploit it but in a funny way uh for my show lucha libre and laughs i had minora suzuki about a year ago in the main event and i emailed boss it was still the same email he was using and i kind of gave him like hey you might not remember me but you practically hospitalized me with a leg kick in training in 1999 any chance i could get you to make this little video here's the thing how many people do you think boss has absolutely wrecked with a leg kick over the decades he doesn't remember me no. of course not but he's like oh yeah so he made this fun little video giving royce comedy pointers on how to beat Minoru suzuki <laughs> that i then used in my marketing that's awesome yeah it was funny i was i was sparring with boss and i kept coming in for a jab coming in for a jab just trying to because i'm a southpaw so i was just yeah. trying to angle off and then he crushes me with a leg kick i go down i thought my leg was broken I was try, just trying not to start sobbing right yeah. there in the middle of class. And he was so excited. He's like, okay, so this is what you did wrong. Every time you come in for the jab, you tap your toe a little. So you tap your toe a little. So I look at your leg and I know he's going to throw a jab. And finally, I timed it perfectly. And that's why you're down there. I think so, sir. But I'm going to go sit down for the rest of class if that's okay with you. I don't want to walk out of here because I don't think I can. I'm sorry, sir. And another thing you see a lot in the VHS tapes, in the DVDs, in the downloads, is fighters having to teach their famous tricks. I watched some of the Marco Huas ones, and of course he had to have an entire tape about foot stomps, because that's how he wore down a, the giant Paul Varlins in one of his fights. So everybody had to have their almost like wrestling finisher put front and center to show how they pulled off a special move, and sometimes Fighters have a very specific way that their body does things, how they do things with their personal style that aren't necessarily teachable. Like I remember watching some of Wonder Boy's um, instructional videos yeah. and I'm like, that works perfectly for your athleticism yeah, for you. and your style, but I don't feel that's teachable or absorbable to 99% of the people who would watch it because primarily you need to either just have the basics or have like almost like that seminar style where you're learning kind of some cool advanced things. Yeah. Like I remember a, I had one of the Mario Sperry ones and it was him and Bustamante doing a arm bar from guard and when it's defended pivoting head in to catch the other arm and i was like that is so goddamn cool yeah. and i worked to that until i finally caught somebody with oh, it nice. but again if you didn't know how to do an arm bar from guard to start that's going to be meaningless to you yeah yeah i remember uh just going off of like special moves i remember watching a benson henderson video about how to defend a single leg and uh he proceeds to just do the splits is how he defends a single leg. And you're like, cool. So less than 2% of the people watching this can just do the full splits and stay athletic. And you're like, you just expect like, yeah, yeah. So you just do the splits and then they give up on the takedown and then you move on from there. And it's like, 
that's not it's not how this works like i explain this to somebody who can't touch their toes well, that's why you, he should have gotten, as a bonus, that VHS tape from Panther Productions' 1992 catalog on mastering the center splits. Good good point, good point. So I can do them between two cabinets in my kitchen. <laughs> exactly. And one of the greatest drawbacks that came from the kind of the peer-reviewed, self-taught, basement training, backyard-style jiu-jitsu, grappling, whatever, is... A little thing we'll politely call unearned confidence. Yes. Because you would have these guys, and I was one of them when I was in high school. Again, like I, I would have some of my wrestler friends come over, and we would wrestle. I would learn wrestling, and I would start trying to implement the submission holds into that. And I, I feel by having friends who were good competitive freestyle wrestlers in high school probably gave me like five leg ups on a lot of the people doing this similar thing until you could find a proper school. Yeah. But you would get your VHS sets. You would be like, man, walk strutting around town with just knowing you are just so fucking tough. Sometimes you'd get a free t-shirt. I remember with the Half Gracie one, uh, tapes came with a t-shirt that I wore. Like a two-stripe white belt wouldn't have tied me in goddamn knots at yeah. that point. But I'm just strutting around with my Team Gracie yeah. shirt like a real asshole. You're like still calling him Ralph Gracie. Like, <laughs> I bought these Ralph Gracie VHSs. You don't, you don't even want to mess with me. I'm too tough for you now. And a lot of times those correspondence courses did blow up in people's faces. Because again, you have that level of unearned confidence. Because when I was 18, Amal Easton, an amazing jiu-jitsu practitioner and instructor here in Colorado, he had his first gym in Boulder. He was a purple belt at the time. And I went in, and part of the introductory class was everybody who was there. He would just one at a time just roll with everybody just to kind of give him a, a feel for what it's like. He was being just the sweetest boy. Obviously, he's not sweeping people yeah. out of their heads or cranking anything. Yeah. And I'm sitting there waiting for my turn like, oh, man, do I got a surprise for him. I watched the King of Leg Locks VHS <laughs> tapes, and I've been doing lapel chokes in my friend's basement. I didn't have a surprise for him. The yeah. only surprise was for me realizing that I do jack with a side of shit. You knew exactly how to get beat very quickly, but at least made it seem like you had an idea. And it got even worse because, not for me, but just in general, I remember going to one of the first gi tournaments that I did. It was called the Lone Wolf. It was out in Arvada. And it was one of those wild things that you would only see in that era where it was like, the forms competition was first, and then the point sparring, and then the jiu-jitsu tournament, and then the judo tournament, and then the kickboxing, and then the Muay Thai, and then the MMA. It was a heck of a day, but there was this group that showed up, and uh, and I was talking with them, and they all had Torrance gear, uh, Academy gear, so Gracie Torrance Academy, and I'm like, oh, are you, where are you guys from? They were all tape-trained, peer-reviewed kids coming in and be like, oh yeah, it's our first big tournament. Like a couple of them had VHS correspondence awarded blue belts. It was not competitive. Is that the nice way to put it? I, I think so, yeah. Because these guys went out and got absolutely slaughtered and in an almost pro wrestling type of turn, 
they were doing the MMA fights and it was literally one guy was there for fighting and they had an odd number of people. And it was like, does anybody want to step in and face this guy? And one of those crazy guys went in there and got his face kicked off. Another had signed up for it earlier and ended up fighting Larry Parker, who is, if you don't know Larry Parker, he's a Colorado Denver based fighter. He fought in pride. He fought at a very high level and he beat the brakes off of this guy. And this is kind of a weird quasi-amateur rules at those times. It was like, I think it was like 15 minutes, no rounds, no yeah. judges, no elbows, and no knees to the face. And I just remember the guy later bragging to the rest of his self-trained gang about how he looked like Don Fry after he fought Mark Coleman. And I was like, is that really the takeaway yeah. you should have from all this? It's not the best thing in the world to be like, hey, I got my ass kicked, but I kind of look like somebody else who also got their ass kicked. And again, it's because when you're not being properly coached, you don't get the details. Yeah. You know, if you could watch a video of somebody doing a Kimura, but unless you have your coach like watching you going, dude, your hips are way up, you know, hey, you know, keep your foot over here, you're off balance. The guy can sweep you if you're doing this. All you're doing is just monkey see, monkey do without like a third party watching and making sure you're doing it right you're going to miss a lot of the details my friend Royce Isaacs trains with former UFC champ Josh Barnett and he sent me a clip of they were working just your basic you know Americana style key lock and Josh was demonstrating how stay away from the lit wrist it's actually grab part of the hand yeah. and you'll have a better leverage on here and and I was watching that and just like the little details he was showing I'm like oh that you know that is freaking awesome yeah. but again if you don't know how to do the lock from the most basic mount, push down, you know, type of thing, yeah. you're not going to understand why that's so cool or that important because proper coaching, whether it's any sport, fighting, boxing, jujitsu, pro wrestling, if you're not doing proper training, you're not learning to your, you're not going to reach your full potential on any level and you're going to possibly be a danger to yourself and others. Yeah. It's, it's one of those, like, I mean, owning a gym, obviously I want people to come into the gym and learn, but it's like, if you have somebody that has experienced something, whether it be competition or have like, they've learned from somebody else, then you can kind of start to pick from them. Like I know there's a group of guys in Denver that don't, have a traditional gym they just kind of train out of their own place but they've all like the guy running the thing has been in jiu-jitsu for a long time so he's learned so he knows some of the details and then having all of that to break it down it's like you don't necessarily need a gym per se but you need somebody that has seen it and has done it from somebody who has learned because you can't just if we're all day ones you're going to miss all the details so you need somebody to, to guide you and then you can start to you know go from there but it's like you need somebody who's done it properly otherwise it's like yeah you you walk out there and you're like i know how to do a kimura and you're like no you don't you're gonna get dumped on your head the second you try this and also the thing is like yes you can learn a little bit from vhs tapes you can learn from watching fights you can learn by fucking around with your friends you know what you're missing out on in addition to actual good knowledge and coaching? Training is fun. Yeah. It is so fun. It's the best. Whether you love jujitsu or boxing or kickboxing, going and making new friends and 
training and holding the pads and working chokes and rolling and all this stuff is the most fun you can have on an afternoon. It's, it's the literal best thing in the world. I've never had anybody that's trained jiu-jitsu and went like, man, I hate hanging out with everybody at this gym. I hate learning this stuff with my friends. I hate everything. Like, nope, that's, once you start doing it, it is the best thing that most people have ever done. They're like, why didn't I start this earlier? This is the coolest thing ever. And something people a lot of times don't realize is people who are deep into their journey as a fighter or a martial artist. And I want to make sure I do make that a differential. I had a jiu-jitsu coach who said, fighting is a career, jiu-jitsu is a practice you can do your whole life. And I feel that's true of most arts. Like, I, I will never step in the ring, lace up the gloves, and go 12 rounds with anyone ever again. But you know what? Going down to the boxing gym, going to the kickboxing gym every now and then, and just banging on the pads, working out with some dudes is so much fun. And people a lot of times think you're going to walk into these places and it's going to be like that scene in Rocky three where, you know, Apollo Creed takes Rocky to like the, the poor gym where everybody's just looking at him like somebody they're going to whoop his ass to make a name for themselves. The nerds have kind of won the martial arts war, I think is the way to put it. You're not going to walk into nearly any gym and it's going to be like the guys who take it way too seriously and they're there to kick ass. Because if you're the sort of person who's like, I want to be the baddest motherfucker in town, first of all, you need therapy, not jujitsu. Because you are going to get choked, stretched, tapped by some kid 25 pounds lighter than you wearing a Dragon Ball Z rash guard. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the amount of engineers and architects and just anime nerds that are at my gym is overwhelming. Like the amount of tough guys is so small. It's all people that are like, hey, did you watch the new, um, I say Naruto, I don't know how to say it properly. But like, did you watch that anime? And then more of them join in and then it becomes this giant honeycomb of anime nerds talking in general. And I'm like, hey. Let's talk about pro wrestling, all right? I don't need you guys to be nerds over there. Let's talk about a different nerdy thing. And that'll actually be a fun thing to kind of conclude here is pro wrestling. Obviously, it's it's my 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 path in life is yeah. running pro wrestling shows. And you're a pro wrestling fan. Yes. What is it about pro wrestling that people who involved in martial arts should appreciate more of? Oh, man. I think just the... Uh, the amount of like body control is a weird way to put it, but like pro wrestling and jujitsu are pretty close in a way where it's like, if you don't know what you're doing, you can hurt somebody. Even though it seems like, you know, jujitsu is obviously more combat than pro wrestling in a way, but it's like, if you don't know what you're doing, you can hurt somebody. You can't just walk in. Everyone thinks you can just walk in and be a pro wrestler, but it's like, no, you have to learn how to do these things to make sure that you're not just one hurting yourself and two hurting everybody else. It's like, you can control somebody in jujitsu. That's the whole point is not to break an arm. It's to control somebody to where they can't do anything and you can dis dissolve these situations. So it's like a lot of people don't realize the amount of, you know, work it takes in both to be an actual quality uh, practitioner. And again, there's always going to be the people who dismiss pro wrestling because it's that fake shit. But again, the roots of Brazilian jiu-jitsu run through 
professional wrestling in the early 1900s. Judo was a big influence on catch wrestling in England once it started kind of going out into the world. Catch wrestling, in turn, influenced judo. Catch as catch can is the basis for modern professional wrestling. The guy who taught the Gracies was a professional wrestler. So you do kind of see some of it bleed through. There's a lot of people who are legitimate grapplers who also do professional wrestling. You have the Sakurabas. You have the MMA fighters who become pro wrestlers like Tom Lawler. You have the guys who did both the whole way through, like Minoru Suzuki, Josh Barnett, guys like that. Because again, both of them are a lot of fun. Back in the early 2000s, a lot of the Americans that would go to Japan to fight for Pride would go in, if Pride was on a Saturday, they would go in on a Thursday, do a pro wrestling show on Friday, fight on Saturday, fly home on Sunday. And because I don't really know many people who are deep into a legitimate grappling journey that aren't at least secret wrestling fans. Yeah. Yeah, uh, my, it's weird because my dad is a uh, brown belt in karate, and uh, he doesn't understand how I can like like legitimate or you know UFC, MMA, and jiu-jitsu and also enjoy pro wrestling as much as I do. And it's like it's not hard. Like they're not crazy different. Like yeah, there's there's a little more character arc than there is, but it's like look at Conor McGregor. He's basically a pro wrestler so it's like how can you not like both yeah and again you have a lot of stylistic overlap particularly in the japanese wrestling style where you have that kind of shoot style wrestling where they still try to more or less hide the entertainment value case in point even here at my show lucha libre and laughs which is kind of a silly show i've had things like royce isaacs versus minora suzuki a lot of Royce Isaacs matches against Simon Gotch, against Jeff Cobb, where you watch it, and if you apply anything that you're seeing in their match, it would work for real yeah. because it's rooted in the reality of grappling. Yeah. And we're kind of running low on time, so this seems like a good place to wrap things up. I guess, ultimately, what I want to say about the jiu-jitsu tape craze before there were schools everywhere, is it was good for Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It just didn't create good Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Yeah, it spread it, but it didn't necessarily spread what you wanted. <laughs> yeah, it was the, if you're spreading it over, like butter over toast, this was that hard little lump that uh, yeah. was at the back of the package that you probably should have thrown out. You didn't close the lid all the way, so there's some crust on that yeah, one. Yeah, it's, it's, it's technically, technically jiu-jitsu, yeah. but uh, it's not really what you wanted when it comes right down to it. Again, I want to thank Troy for being here. If you're in the Denver area, Nova Mente Jiu-Jitsu, go check it out. Go go in for a drop-in. Have some fun. If you're not in the Denver area and you're interested, find a Jiu-Jitsu school in your area. Go have your beginner's classes. Have fun with it. Whatever your passion is in the martial arts or in wrestling or wherever it is, embrace it. Enjoy the journey. You only get to go around this, uh, this, this crazy son of ours so many times, so make the most out of it. And I'll post some of the funny ads I find for these tapes on the social media. Make sure you follow it on Twitter. I'm still going to call it Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. A lot of these ads do come across as kind of silly, but they were super fucking cool for their time, so I will post them so you can check them out. I'll be back with Heidi Howitzer in a couple of weeks for another crazy story of pro wrestling history. Until then, 
take care of yourself. Okay.